Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. It was literally just like a sledgehammer knocking me over and I literally broke down in the bathroom, hitting my the back of my head on the bathtub and breaking down. And by breaking down, because I was knocked out from that, I hit my forehead on the floor, on the tiles. So I would drag myself just crawling with the arms in the living room and call my parents. And I said, I feel like I have 10 more minutes to live. You got to fucking run if you're not here in five minutes. I don't know if I make it. This is The Maverick Show, where you'll meet today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers, and learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to The Maverick Show. My guest today is Monique Lindner. She is a high-performance and human optimization specialist, a TEDx speaker, and a location independent entrepreneur. Her clients range from startups to Fortune 500 companies like Apple. She works with individual CEOs and business leaders, as well as teams of up to 160 people in helping them to optimize systems, processes, mindset, and productivity to achieve massive impact. Monique has helped her clients cut up to 50% of working hours, double and triple their revenue, and significantly reduce stress, anxiety, and overwhelm while building unbreakable confidence and resilience. With her unique TIME method and her motto, slow down to speed up, she is on a mission to help high-achieving business owners take back control of their time and energy. Monique has built her business with a completely location-independent infrastructure and has been traveling the world full-time and has been to over 44 countries. Monique is also a survivor of four chronic diseases, sexual violence, mental abuse, and bullying. Monique spent years transforming trauma, adversity, and hardship into personal growth and transforming pain into power. Today, Monique is committed to helping other survivors of trauma, sexual violence, and chronic diseases to become the strongest, most confident, and most empowered versions of themselves by building resiliency, self-love, and an invincible will to live. Monique, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. 
Well, thank you for being here. I am so excited to have you here. We should just set the context of where we are right now. Do you want to share exactly where we're doing this interview? Yeah, so we're at the conference in Bangkok, and we're in the middle of a ballroom of like a five-star hotel, empty, but there are like, I would say like 500 seats probably, empty still but we're like right next to the stage we could have sat on it but like there is a sofa just right next to it so and we're just slaying it right here we are we are crushing it for this imaginary 500 to a thousand person audience that is not here but they are listening to us on the podcast so it's kind of a nice dynamic and we are at the Dynamite Circle conference which is a gathering of about 300 location independent entrepreneurs from around the world and we met actually at your talk that you gave, which was super awesome and inspiring. Thank you. And uh, I looked more into you and your brand and everything that you're doing and totally amazing and inspiring and wanted to get you on the show for sure. And so here we are. <laughs> here we are. And super, super excited. Super efficient. <laughs> <laughs> super efficient. Exactly right. So super excited for this conversation. Do you want to start maybe just talking a little bit about your background and where you grew up and sort of your journey to entrepreneurship? Well, I'm from East Germany. So my parents, they grew up behind the wall. So what we kind of call behind the wall. So for anyone who never heard of that, uh, Germany in the 60s got split into two different parts. One was the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, uh, which was after the war basically ruled by the Russians, so by the Soviet Union, basically. And the other part was a uh, split into ruled by the Americans and the Britons. And that was just like the Republic uh, of Germany. And it was basically after the Second World War, right, when Winston Churchill decided to bomb the shit out of Germany, um, especially out of my hometown. So my hometown is Dresden. And in Dresden, we got bombed don't want to say the wrong number, but I believe it was 15 times in two days, especially in February. We have like a day where we kind of remember this time. It's called Crystal Night. And the, the reason why is because Americans and Britons bombed the heck out of us and everything went to trash, basically, especially all the glass, right? And so you could hear the glass breaking from the bombs. And that's why it's called Crystal Night. So why do I tell that? Well, first of all, it had a lot of influence and impact on my life without me being there, without um, knowing anything about it. But it, um, if someone knows about epigenetics, which is like the um, intergenerational trauma that's been kind of like going through generations, right? It definitely kind of impacted me of how I build relationships because I kind of didn't because there was always this uh, really deep fear of losing people that are close to me that came a lot from my grandparents because they were 13, 14 and I believe 12 and 15 when they were in the war. So they've seen it, they lived through it and definitely hearing these stories and having kind of someone being so close to these events was a very different experience, right? And so my parents, they both were born 1960, 1961. And that's the exact year where the wall was built. So you got to imagine there was a whole fucking wall through Germany. And um, if you come closer than a kilometer, they would shut you in the face. Only from the east side, though. If you come from the west side, they would ask yourself, like, why the heck are you trying to get to the other side? Like, don't. <laughs> and so in the beginning, I think in the first 
I think five to 10 years, people tried to flee East Germany different ways. And then they kind of shut the border down completely and literally shot people. It was pretty excruciating. And so it turned into a prison, basically, right? And so my parents never knew anything else. But growing up in this, uh, <laughs> there is a name for my city and my um, place where I grew up. They call it the Valley of the Unknown. Because especially my place uh, where I grew up was basically no other outside influence reached this place. So we were the only town in all East Germany that didn't have any West German newspapers, no West German TV, no West German radio stations. And it's because we were in the valley and there was no access to any outside uh, news. So we were the only place in the whole country with only access to East German news. So we were like totally shut off. So you can imagine my parents when the wall came down, 1989, um, <laughs> they were like, wait, there's another world? Huh? Nah, it's okay. <laughs> like, it's all right. We'll stick to ours for a bit. And so it took a while. So that's where I grew up. Um, the mindset, like our, our minds is like pretty old school, like relationship building is like pretty strong friendships. You don't just build a friendship with an East German. You, you have to work for it really hard, you know, as for anything, uh, money doesn't grow on trees. If you don't work hard, you don't get anything back for it. If like all these kind of things, right. That I, I literally had to smash through it. It's all bullshit. Let me tell you from the beginning. Um, the last time my parents told me money doesn't grow on trees, I got a bunch of 20 euro um, notes out of my pocket and I literally clipped them into a tree. And I was like sitting down looking at them, serious. And I said, really? Who told you? <laughs> and they were looking at me. They're like, man, you're fucking annoying. <laughs> and I was like, who told you? Like, I have a money tree. It's right there. <laughs> And they, they literally, I was serious, right? Because I wanted them to just shut the fuck up with all of these limiting beliefs. Because, you know, they're just, with everything I would do, there was one thing I would do. There's like 10 limiting beliefs, 10 things that would happen to me. Like in their minds, I would have been killed and died and whatever, like 500 times already. Can you talk a little bit, though, about growing up in that culture and what that translated to when you were young in terms of your work I mean, work ethic on the one hand, but, you know, work reality on the other hand and, and how you sort of, you know, grew up and then how those realizations came to fruition about transcending those limiting beliefs and ultimately leading you towards entrepreneurship. Mm. So I've seen everyone in my family, every single one of them would work their asses off. And this is like something that I must say I'm very proud of to report back <laughs> because there's not one person that I would look at even now, like even like my cousins, like my sister's a freaking machine, uh, <laughs> like still today, like sometimes we don't talk for two weeks and suddenly she's promoted to the freaking CEO of a company and I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not even surprised, you know, because like this is who we are. So this work ethics literally comes from actually being in East Germany. So if you look back in the history, we got cut off from any import into the country. And because they didn't have all these products, we didn't have like lint chocolate from next door or we didn't have all of these fancy products. They would just start their own, right? 
like, oh, suddenly we don't have tea bags. Let's invent our own. We don't have all of these fancy machines and telephones, and whatever. Let's create our own. And this was the whole, there was no crying and whining and complaining. There was just like, well, that's a shame. Uh, whatever. Let's do it ourselves. So I really saw everyone working hard, right? But the reunion of Germany, East and West, also meant that West Germany kind of took over most of the industries. So we were built on many, many different small uh, shops, you know, how you see it in Asia here still. So everyone is kind of an entrepreneur, right? So this is what it happened in Germany. You know, it was all community-based. So suddenly these huge industry-based corporations would come and be like, so we buy all of the small shops. And those people seem really old. Like my dad was, I believe he was like 37-ish. No, 37 is really old. So let's kick them all out. And we hire young people that we don't pay much. And we just train them to whatever average skills. So my dad was an auto mechanic and he lost his job. And though, because the industry changed so much, like in literally every industry, but the whole society changed as like who you have to be to work or to get work and find a job. So I remember sitting down, I was just turning 13 when my dad lost his job and I was sitting down and helping him writing his uh, resume. And he would literally walk into hundreds of companies a year and bring his resume and he just literally heard on the spot you're told and he would just he would be so depressed because he was like 37 so anyways I started working when I was 13 because my mom has a spine injury she can only work 60 percent 60 percent of the salary doesn't work for four people in the house um, and my sister already had a little job on the side uh, at the weekends so it was me left you know and there was no question my my parents never asked me to do it but there was no question for me. I was like, I'm 13. I can fucking go and work. And they were like, no, no, no. You had, you know, you have school, whatever. I'm like, well, I have eight hours of school and there's plenty of time left for me. Right. And then I just went head on. But I mean, I took this a little bit too serious with this working kind of thing. And what impact did that have on you starting to work that hard at that early of an age? Like, well, how did that go? I believe it made me really resilient and perseverant in a lot of fields. I mean, you can hear it, you can see it, I'm a woman. Working as a woman in whatever industry, you do have to prove yourself many more times than a man. If you want to hear that or not, I also don't really care, but it's just a fact, right? There are different other levels, right? So if you were a black woman, you have to prove yourself like 15 times more than even me. And so, and this is the sad truth of our society, but it is the truth, right? And so me walking into a place and be like, hi, I want to work. And they would look at me and be like, well, what can you do? <laughs> and then, you know, a friend of mine would walk in and be like, hey, I want to work. And they were like, okay. Here you go, right? Because they would associate that he can do some labor kind of work. I was like, I can do fucking labor, like probably better than him and faster. And they would never believe me. But anyway, so that's a whole different story. What I would learn is like, first of all, I was really great at work, right? Because I saw that all my life already, how it works. And so there was no question of why I should do something. It was just, how can I get it done the fastest way and more efficient? So I worked in very different places. I started in the pizzeria 
to clean it. And I was promoted to making salsas. was a really fast career improvement. And then I cleaned uh, pharmacies. And the next job was I started working in a petrol station. So while all my friends were going to party and do whatever, I was 15 and I would wake up every weekend at four o'clock and start for 30 a.m. to work at the petrol station and then finish at like two or three p.m., go to the next job half an hour later. So literally just on the way, eat, you know, and then go to the next job, finish that at like 10 p.m. and then work through the night um, at events and, you know, do stuff like that, entertainment. And so I would do that. And when I started with 13, I didn't have one single day off, nor did I have one afternoon free or whatever for six full years. And I did that in the beginning because I wanted to support my parents. So I did all of the vacation time that I worked. I just put the money back into their, wherever they had their money, um, that they saved up for rainy days. And I just put back money in. And once they realized that, they were really angry at me. And then like we all pretended it never happened. And then just they gave me some money back and I put it back in and like all this kind of things, you know, we never talk about it right now as well. Like I'm just pretending it's never happened. And I think it's a great thing that I was able to just give. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough for, you know, sometimes here or there, 100 euro, 150 there. And it would help. So that's the point. And yeah, and it would just teach me like, you know, to be independent and also to stand up for myself in a world where I was told I'm not worth anything. Like I was treated like I'm not worth anything and I'm just like a toy for others or just like to be pushed around or like not valuable enough to do the better jobs, the higher jobs, whatever. And I would just say like, no, <laughs> I am and I will do it. And so I think because I had also a little bit of naivete of, of well, I can do things, you know, like I'm really great at, at whatever I do. I just had jobs that other people would take a half of a lifetime to get there. And I had them by the age of 22, which I thought is quite a thing. <laughs> so you did that. You were working that hard, you said, for six years consistently. Did that happen? And then what happened after six years? What was kind of the... The breaking point. Yeah. So uh, one day I came home. I was 19 years old. I recognized how my migraines, so I had multiple different versions of migraines, including epileptic seizures. And I kind of realized, oh, they are coming really fast. So usually I would get an aura before and I would feel like, oh, I can't see probably anymore, can't speak probably anymore, whatever. But at this day, it was literally just like a sledgehammer knocking me over and I literally broke down in the bathroom, hitting the back of my head on the bathtub and breaking down. And by breaking down, because I was knocked out from that, I hit my forehead on the floor, on the tiles, and that's woke me up. <laughs> so I guess it was lucky. And, and I was like, oh, fuck, this is really hard. So I got the seizures and they just, they really knocked the heck out of me. And so my seizures would basically start usually to shut down parts of my brain and get me to cramp up my hands and my feet. Like literally you would see like even my toes go over each other and just, and would shake so much, right? And so my mobile phone was in my living room. It wasn't far, it was just like crawling around the corner. So I would track myself just crawling with the arms in the living room and call my parents. And I said like, okay, so this is literally a red flag. This is alarm, whatever. I like, I feel like I have 10 more minutes to live. 
you gotta fucking run if you're not here in five minutes. I don't know if I make it. Bring a fucking ambulance. And I hate the ambulance. I mean, they did a lot of things just plain out wrong. But when I told my parents I want an ambulance, they ran. And so they were there within five minutes. And the moment my mom opened the door and put the light on, which is like the worst you can do with migraines, never put the light on. <laughs> but she put the light on. She's like, what are you like? Are you okay? I'm like, don't scream at me. And then I just knocked out. And she said, the ambulance is here. They're going to help you. And that was the last words I heard. And I just blacked out. And suddenly it was white. And I was like, wait, I know the black. I don't know the white. What's happening? And suddenly I just felt like I'm detaching myself from my body. And so I floated out of my body. And it was like in a kind of in a Buddha lotus seat hanging over my body and I saw myself lying there and my parents next to me and I saw the ambulance rushing in, um, you know, getting the IV into my arms, whatever. So I floated up and I was like, okay, yeah, you'll be fine down there. And I floated into this white space. Oh my God, that was really weird. As if a hospital would have turned up all of their lights and you wouldn't see anything else but the light. And so I drifted towards it and suddenly like all these moments pop up, right? I was like, oh, oh, wait, oh, shit, is this what it is? You know, out of body, wait. And I looked back and I couldn't see myself anymore, really. I was like, oh, I think I know what I'm here for. And so I realized I'm kind of like drifting away. I'm, a, I'm about to die, die. And so the light got brighter and brighter. And these moments that popped up, you would think that they would be the most important things, like great moments with your family, whatever. No, random, shitty moments in my life, like my ex-boyfriend smashing a rose over my head, where it's like, wow, my life is a shit show. This is just horrendous. Like, I don't want this life. Actually, I could just leave. But I didn't have anything that I would have been like, all right, so if I died, that would be a thing. And so suddenly I had this like, wait, no, I can't die. Like, I have to go back. I'm I need to make things happen because it was 25 seconds that I was clinically dead and out of body. And I know this because I had tests. It felt like a freaking decade out there. And so suddenly it felt like someone dropped a prick on my chest from like a 50 meter skyscraper. It was like the most painful pain in my heart chest area that I ever had it was the first heartbeat. And I remember this pain because sometimes I still have it. Sometimes when I make a wrong decision or do something or when I feel like, oh, something's going really wrong, that's when it comes back. And so the first heartbeat was, oh, I was so fucking painful. <laughs> I can't even explain. And I woke up. I was like, oh, I made it. Wow. And then once you were on the other side of that experience and you were resuscitated and you had had those reflections yeah. through that experience on your life up to that point. How was it coming out on the other side of that experience? And what was your vision towards how you wanted to chart the rest of your life course? I did change quite a few things. So I was like, okay, I should change my life and I should go travel. So that's when I started traveling. I was 19. I did go started solo traveling, right? And um, I kept this as being a huge part of my life, obviously. But what happened was like, I didn't make the connection between me overworking myself and dying. 
because everyone kept telling me like, oh, you know, it's the, it's your chronic diseases, right? So I was like, yeah, okay. It has nothing to do with the work. It has nothing to do with the way I live, whatever. It's a chronic diseases. I can't do anything about that. So basically what happened is I pushed another five years even harder until I got a spine injury, <laughs> which literally kicked my ass and I couldn't walk anymore. And I got kicked out of the job illegally. And the therapist who was about to help me raped me. And then I thought like, okay, I'm 24. I seem to have a recurring pattern of shit shows that comes back into my life. What's going on here? What's the common denominator? And the common denominator was me. And I looked in the mirror and I was like, wow, that is really harsh. But it's the truth. The truth is the common denominator of all of these events was me. And then I was sitting down and I was 24 and I was like, yeah, I really do not like that. So what do I have to do to change it? What do I have to do to get out of this roller coaster of super high highs, super low lows? Because I keep crashing lower and lower and lower the next time, right? I didn't want to fall lower. I mean, like being raped from a therapist when you can't walk anymore is just like as low as I wanted to go, you know? And losing all of my friends. When I walked up to my friend and I told her the story, she said like, well, now that the police said they can't do anything, you can get over it. This is how much mental support I had all <laughs> through all of my life until a year or two back, basically, when I cut out all of these toxic connections. So how did you handle that moment in your life when you experienced that level of trauma and you had that little support? How did you grapple with that moment and what was your path to processing and then ultimately transforming that trauma? I think what really made it the worst for me was that my doctors put me on the highest dose of morphine that you can take for seven months and it didn't work. So I was fucking out of space and full of pain. I still couldn't walk. I mean, and I lost a job. So basically what happened was like, I sat down, however you want to call it. I was crippled up in my bed. And usually I was like, I was really overwhelmed with all of this. Like, how should I feel about this? Like, what, what am I going to do? All the process, the police can't do anything about it because I went to report and all they did were like walking up to him. Hey, did you do that? And he was like, no. And they were like, well, he said no. So we can't do anything. So... I think the the combination of like not having any support, not knowing what to do, not having this job anymore, having to ask my parents for rent, but the medication that just fucked my brain and pushed me out of space, basically. This was really, really exhausting, but I just applied kind of my own strategies. I kind of thought as my own project, it was the only way for me to know it. By this time, I didn't know anything about emotions. I knew angry and happy. It's the only two emotions I ever had in my life. Whenever I was sick, I had to make sure that everyone else around me felt good and happy and they wouldn't worry about me. So I was in a, like in agony and in excruciating pain, but I would make sure that I am happy and make everyone else happy around me so they wouldn't worry. Just so for a background, basically, right? Unless I was blacked out, then, well, go do it yourself. <laughs> So how did I get through it? 
honestly, I, I just start as a project. So I have always been really organizational and maybe analytical about these kind of things and really radical. So I was like, okay, what do I have to do? I have to find a job. It was kind of the first thing I thought because I couldn't get this guy behind uh, into jail. I couldn't do anything about it. There was no way that I'm not going into therapy because talking through it doesn't help me. Like having someone sitting opposite, so Monique, how does it, how do you feel about being raped? I would just punch this fucking person in the face if they asked me shit like that, you know, like, you know, make them watch a rape and ask them how they feel about it, you know? Like, I don't know, like, I'm really not the person of therapy. I talk a lot, probably as you can hear, but it's not, you know? So I had to find something different, but it, I don't know why, but it wasn't priority for me. So in this moment, denial was kind of as much as possible as I could deny it. So I hang up all the mirrors because if I would see myself in a mirror, I would throw up. I hated myself a lot at this time. My general doctor who helped me with my spine. So I had every second day I had injections in my skull and in the nerves and in the surface of the brain, basically, with lidocaine, which is like to numb the nerves so that at least I could kind of function. So he injected this like every second day and he helped me with some kind of holistic therapy, kinesiotherapy, kinesiology. Yeah. And so um, this helped me to at least release a lot of these emotions that were so stuck that I didn't know what to point out, what they even were. And he helped me to go through this whole emotional process of letting go for at this event, at least. And so I'm really, really grateful for him. He's been a major, major person who helped me to, to even <laughs> survive in this time and make sense of all of what happened there and whatever. Um, also for believing, because I literally walked up to another person um, in, the, in the medical space and they were like, no, he wouldn't do that. I mean, you know how it is, right? So anyways, I kind of saw this as a project and I would take like the job first. So how do I get a job without being able to walk? Because if they see I can't walk, they wouldn't take me as an employee because then they would have to pay more for the insurance and stuff like that. So I have to fake myself into it. So I basically trained myself into overcoming this pain of not being able to walk and how to track my leg with me so that it looks like I could walk, but I don't. So this was uh, painful. And luckily I chose, uh, I was really good in choosing the right places where I want to work. And I only had to go to three interviews. And one I was um, accepted. I was also really following up with them. I was just like, okay, I'm not going to go to 20 interviews. I'm not going to survive that. So I chose places that I really want to work at. Um, from two, I got the job um, offer and I chose one and, and just run with it basically. So yeah, and then I worked and I worked just myself forward and in my head, I would just make these kind of project plans, how I do it with my clients now, right? But just break it down into mini action steps and do one freaking step at a time and then do the next thing and do the next thing and kind of win. Every day, just have a mini win. If my mini win is that I could get myself into the fucking bathing tub to have a shower because it was a really agony to get in there and out there alone, then I won already, you know? For sure. So how did that job then go when you landed that job? What was then your sort of career trajectory from that point? So by this time, I had already pretty 
well, for my age, right? I was 24 by this time, but I already worked for two big corporations, Siemens and for Apple as a team manager and operations manager. And I built big teams up. I changed processes that impacted 25,000 of their employees and all these kind of things. And so I was a project manager in a digital marketing agency. And I think they didn't think I would be able to get into that topic so fast because I've never done digital marketing before, but it was pretty new. It was 2000, again, 2011 that I got into it. So for Germany, it was a pretty early off start of a startup, basically. So we were the first agency that would do solely social media and what we call digital transformation. So we took their offline marketing and would turn it into online marketing. And we had huge companies that we worked for um, first in Germany and then worldwide. Also because one of our company founders is just a freaking badass and getting deals. And like, he's just a sales magnet. Literally, he goes out, he talks just as much or more even than I do. But then that's how he got all the relations and sold, right? And then he came back and would put this on our tables, the project manager's tables. And he's like, so you've got the three months. And we were like, well, that's a project for a whole year. And he's like, well, I got you three months. And we're like, fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you know, and that's how we had to run. I did that for three years. And then I thought I have enough of this German pushy efficiency corporate. Women are not good enough environment. And I said, okay, cool. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to be a scuba dive instructor. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Cool. See you later. And I left. And what was that transition like for you in terms of, I guess, how you were thinking about that, like that's a major break from all the things that you described in terms of how you were socialized, how you were raised, how you worked, you know, as you were growing up and all those types of things. When you got to that particular moment in your life, when you were willing to say, <laughs> I'm going to go figure out how to be a scuba diving instructor. Can you t just talk about like your mindset in that transitionary moment? Mm. And what what fundamentally changed? I think what has always been the case was that I never really felt I belong. I think growing up with these um, chronic diseases was really a great gift for me because I always was different. I was always the outsider. I was always bullied, but it made me have to find different solutions. First, I died. And then five years later, I had this spinal cord injury 
and I got bullied more and more. And I was like, why do I get bullied so much? You know, like, what the heck is it that they don't like about me? Why do they hate me so much? It was usually women that bullied me. And I just got to understand, like, I just don't belong. Like, I think different. I work different. I have just like, I don't belong here. Like, I got to go out. And when I started with this company, I would already travel twice a year. And so this was one of the things where I said, like, twice a year, I'm going to go on holiday. And they were like, yeah, we're fine with that. And it worked out. But this one time I went on a trip to Vietnam and Cambodia, beginning of 2013, I believe. And so I went through Vietnam and I did all of the things and I went through Cambodia. But on the plane home, it was like a three leg trip. And in Amsterdam, I get out of the plane and they say like, hey, you have like an hour. You need to go to your last leg to go to Berlin. When they said like, you need to go to your plane right now to get the airplane to Berlin. I literally was standing there shaking and I'm like, I can't go on this plane. And they were like, what? I'm like, no, the life that's waiting there for me, this is the most horrendous thing that I just could go back now. I'm like, do you have a plane back to Asia? And they were looking at me and they were like, no. I'm like, but you do have flights here. It's like Amsterdam. It's like one of the biggest airports in Europe. They're like, no, you need to go to your plane. I'm like, but no, 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 I can just, but we have your luggage in the plane. I'm like, yeah, you can put my luggage somewhere. I don't give a fuck. Like, but can I go on the plane back to Asia? And they're like, no. And when we started, I would start crying and just shaking. And I was like, I didn't know why. But then being in Amsterdam and they told me I have to go to Berlin, I got the dots reconnected. I was like, this is the most horrendous life. I have started building up myself again and that was the point where I thought like wait you already died of that shit you already thought about like you want to change your life here you go again you're in a shitty place you're miserable your friends like are meh and now you're gonna go back to what being bullied every fucking single day for how much money again nothing I'm like this is fucked up I have to quit I'm going back to Asia I'm becoming a scuba dive instructor and I'll change my life. And I go, fuck all of this corporate shit. And I went home and I sat down for five hours and I made a whole plan how I can leave this society, how I can leave this matrix, how I can leave the fucking system. And here I am five and a half years later. <laughs> That's so amazing. You are amazing. Can you talk about how that journey went for you once you did that? And you made the decision and you announced the decision and you made the plan. Can you talk about how that journey went for you and what your life was like and how that mental and emotional transition was as well once you put that plan into action and started that completely new life path? I mean, I just did the thing that I always did. Like I was just naive and it was like, hey, so I actually contacted a few scuba schools and one in Phuket, I contacted and I saw they had a German boss. So I wrote him and said like, I see your website and your social media is quite shit. Do you need help with it? By the way, I want to become a scuba dive instructor. So why don't we see what we can do for each other? That's amazing. <laughs> and so... So I kind of just went along with being like, oh, by the way, I have these skills that you could really use because, I mean, right, it's obvious. And then, uh, but I don't want to use them all the time. So can we kind of make a deal? So we made a deal that I would get the complete education from zero to basically scuba hero, which would 
normally if the way that I did it within eight months of time would cost around eight to ten thousand dollars and I got it for more or less free so then I did the first year in Thailand scuba dive instructor I moved to Australia so I worked again in a few agencies and like in shops and I had a really abusive relationship there not good and then I saved up ten thousand US dollars I was like okay fuck that. You know, I'm done with jobs. I'm done with working. <laughs> I think I've done enough. So I went traveling for seven months in Latin America, 10 countries, 26 and a half thousand kilometers overland. I think I must have walked around three and a half thousand kilometers, just like trekking, hiking, walking. What were some of the highlights of your South America trip? One of them certainly was the Inca Trail um, trek to Machu Picchu. The reason why is because I chose one of the best companies I could have ever found. Also because they're a social business, so they're supporting the community there um, with the indigenous people, which is one of my most important things to do as well, to help communities who don't have as many opportunities or privilege as I have. I use my privilege to support them, to get on the same starting line, you know? So basically just help them get there and then present opportunities so they can also just grab them and run with it. And so I loved what they were doing. And like literally, if it wasn't for them, the experience would have been maybe a fifth as good. And so this was crazy. And then the Caño Cristales, which is the colorful river in Colombia, where this is the only river in the world where you have underwater plants. They're not algae. They're not seagrass. They are underwater plants, underwater flowers. And the reason why they are flowering is because they have a certain alkalinic-based water basically there as well. But it's only going to bloom with a certain height of water level, basically, and with a specific level of alkaline, basically, in the water. So I was lucky enough to be in Colombia at the time. Wow. And then another one, like one of my favorite ones was um, I went into the Amazonas jungle in Bolivia. Have you ever heard about the death road in La Paz? I have mountain biked down the death road. Yeah, me too. In La Paz. Right. Which is now you have spent, I think, more time in Bolivia than I have for sure. I did about only probably an eight day trip. We mountain biked down the death road and then we did La Paz. I went to Cochabamba for probably about a day. And then I went down to the salt flats in Ayuni and I went through those for three days, which was just magical. But I did not go into the Amazon and do some of the other stuff that you did. So I would love to hear about your... And Bolivia is, by the way, I mean, it's... you know, When I recommend things to people in South America, I think Bolivia is especially the case for Americans. I mean, I think internationally as well, but especially for Americans, Bolivia is just not on people's radars. And I think it is one of the most stunningly, naturally gorgeous countries, landscape I've seen anywhere on the planet. It was just so crazy to me because in those eight days, the diversity of the landscape that we saw just felt like you're on a different planet like every day when you're in the salt flats and then you're seeing rainbow colored mountains and red lagoons and flamingos. And, you know, I mean, it was just, you know, and then the moon valley outside of La Paz and then you're just, I mean, it, it was literally like you saw like different planets each day in Bolivia. It was just insane. Yeah. 
tell me what you thought about the death road and can you explain a little bit just like how it feels like? Yeah. So the world's most dangerous road, also called the death road for short, is I think it's a 63 kilometer downhill road and it descends about 10,000 feet from top to bottom. And so the reason why it's called the world's most dangerous road is because it used to be the primary transportation route where cars and trucks carrying produce and things needed to drive to get from one place to another in Bolivia. And it is about a one car length wide road that has no guardrail and about a thousand foot drop off. And so what used to happen is, especially during the rainy season, cars would try to pass each other on the road and one car would just go right over the edge. And you go over the edge of that cliff, that's it. So there would be 300 plus people per year dying on the road because it was so dangerous for cars to try to pass each other on a one lane road with no guardrail and a thousand foot drop off. So there's all these cars would just fall off the road. Now, About, I don't know, 12 years ago or so, they created a bypass road, like a highway for trucks and commerce and things like that to transport through Bolivia. And so now the death road is basically just a road where you can do guided mountain bike trips and things like that. And so we went with a super professional company that takes groups down seven days a week and they've been doing it for 10 years and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you can absolutely do it in total safety and, you know, follow the safety precautions. And if you do that, it was for me a completely extraordinary, amazing experience. One of the highlights of my year. And what happens is you start off at the top. So they drive you up in trucks. And by the way, I mean, the company we used, you know, for the day, we got to use ride on these like $5,000 Kona suspension mountain bikes. I'd never seen a bike like that, let alone been on one. I mean, it was crazy. And so and what they do is they take you all the way up to the top and then you get on the bikes and you go with your guide. And the top is like super cold. So you're wearing like, you know, your jackets and hats and gloves and you're all in your winter gear, snow-capped mountains. And then as you descend, it gets warmer and warmer and warmer. So you're like shedding layers as you go down. And then by the time you get to the bottom, you're in a rainforest, you're in shorts and t-shirts and you go jump in the you know lake and uh, have a swim. But it was, you know, going down was just some of the most beautiful scenery I had ever seen. And it was really, truly one of the most special days of my entire year. Right. So this is perfect description. Now, if you have that in your mind now, right? Imagine, so when I was going down, I didn't ride a bicycle for 10 years by this time. I was going down there in like one kilometer an hour, I'm sure. <laughs> Anyways, so I went down there and then I booked my tour into the jungle. And then the bus was supposed to pick us up. Um, well, <laughs> we only waited another 11 and a half hours outside on the road. They wouldn't let us go into the hotel again. They wouldn't let us stay in any of the restaurants. So we had, literally had to like sit and sleep kind of on the street. And then suddenly in the middle of the night, like 2.45 a.m., someone would scream at us and the bus suddenly turned up. It was 11 and a half hours late. Wow. And then I don't know why I did ask that, but it was like, where are we driving? And they said like, well, half of the, half of the way is like a part of the old death road. So it's not the death road that we came down, but there's another like part of it basically that's that's built the similar way. And I literally stood there and I'm like, you fucking kidding me. Like this bus doesn't even fit on this road. Like this road wasn't like wide enough for the bus. We're like, yeah, but we have to go. There's no other way into the jungle. And I literally stood there and I'm like, this is suicide. I had also a really great seat. 
upstairs in front on the outside. So then I had a total of a 27 hour trip into the jungle. Um, most of that in that bus. <laughs> God, Matt, you, could, you should have seen me. I mean, there's not much I'm crying about. But this was one of the days that I was literally just like trying to hold my shit together. Sitting on the outside of the bus, I literally, like, I can tell you that I've seen this bus multiple times with the outside wheels halfway over the edge already. But there was another bus coming from the other direction and they obviously didn't fit next to each other. So they were navigating back and forth until into a curve. So one had to go backwards, the other one could go forwards until they were in the curve. So one had to like literally go into the mountain range and the other one drive a little bit over the edge. I'm not fucking kidding. And that's how they navigated. And I was like in there, I was like, someone has to knock me out. Literally someone has to knock me out. But I got into the Amazonas and it was another 12 hours to drive right into the jungle, like with a Jeep, you know, with our group. And then we got into the Amazonas River or like a side arm of the Amazonas River. It was full of caimanas. You know what caimanas are? And so there are three different type of crocodiles. There's a crocodile, there's an alligator and there's a caiman. Or maybe you say caiman. And so they have different types of uh, chaw lines, uh, shorter, longer, uh, more spiked or more uh, square. And the caimans basically have the longest, biggest, most square ones and are the most aggressive version of a crocodile. But um, in this part of the Amazonas, they can grow up to like six, seven meters, which is like... Seven meters is like 21 feet. Right. We saw one of them. Its head was two thirds of my whole body. And it was like, I was sitting in the, so we were sitting in this long tail boat where literally the edge of the boat is almost the water surface, right? And this thing, <laughs> like this thing of a caiman, literally comes out of the water right next to me and looks at me. And I'm like, I'm just showing Matt how I turned around because I looked at the head and the head was basically, I leaned back and literally the head started like at my knees and goes all the way to my head basically. And I'm like turning around and I'm trying to see the end. I'm like, all right, nice to meet you. I was literally right here. I could have petted it on the head, right? So the boat was here, the thing comes up here and my guide was like, wow, that's really big. And the whole group turns around, looks at me and I'm like, right there. And they all screamed and freaked out. And I'm like, it's not that bad. It's really not that bad. Don't worry. And I just, I was literally wondering, should I pet it? But then I, I go through my whole set of documentaries that I watched when I was smaller, like a kid or teenager, and know how fast they are in turning around and snapping at you. And they like, he could swallow me in one, you know? So I was like, I decided not to pet him. But anyways, so this river was full of them and you would see them along the river bed like every two or three meters you would see like two or three hanging out of them and you the usual size was maybe like two three meters but there would be like a five or four meter one or this one six meter one right next to you in the water but why we were there was they had pink freshwater dolphins they were amazing so basically what our guide said well you know how dolphins and whales communicate with waves and so apparently the caimans, they kind of don't like these wave sounds and whatever. And that's why they stay away from dolphins. I'm like, cool, good enough for me. And he said like, okay, 
there's a bunch of dolphins. You can jump in now. And I'm just getting my t-shirt out and jumping in the water and going right in the bunch. And I turn around and no one else is coming because the whole crew's just freaking out. They're like, Monique, there's a caiman right next to you. It's going down now. And I turn around and it's like two arm lengths away. And I'm like, all right, well, the water's really dirty. I can't see anything, not even my own hand. So I just pretend <laughs> oh, it's geez. not there. <laughs> and there were enough of them. There were so many, but I was, I was literally like, well, he said they don't like the waves of the dolphins. So I'm just going to think that's true because he's leading tours every day. They were there for already like over 10 years. If they would have tourists jump in the river and die from a caiman attacking them, they wouldn't tell me to jump in. So in my head, that was like three seconds of evaluation. Pink fresh dolphin, caiman, dolphin. Great, let's go in. So I had all of the dolphins alone, all of the group that told me every five seconds, there's not a caiman going down next to you. And I'm like, whatever. I don't see them. They probably don't see me, you know. <laughs> that is unbelievable. <laughs> and then you mentioned to me also that not only are you not afraid, but you actually like snakes. <laughs> and and the Amazon has some pretty big snakes. They do. Did you encounter some of them? Yeah. So we had one day where we were specifically going on land through the, it's not really the jungle, it's more the vast wetland. Well, with jungle area, but you know. And so he asked our crew what we would like to see, like which kind of animals. And I was like, anaconda. And he looked at me and he's like, why? I'm like, why not? Like, I, I came here, I paid a lot of money, took me like fucking long time to come. Like, if I'm here already, like, I want to see something, right? He's like, yeah, but most of the people, they just want to see like whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not most of the people and I don't care what they want to see. So you asked me, I'm saying anaconda. So can you find me an anaconda now? And he's like, you're asking for a lot. He's like, probably one out of 20 times that they actually go look for an anaconda, they find one. I'm like, well. Let's make it this one time today. <laughs> and he's like, all right, I can't promise. I will have a look. So we were like wading through this wetland. And basically you have to have like knee high boots, right? And then you have to wear like the shittiest clothes ever. And we sink in hip deep into mud. I mean that. And we got to a point where he said like, okay, so I know like here this looks like an anaconda could be around. So I'm going to look for it and you can search for it. And we were like, okay, how would it? look like if an anaconda would be around and so he explained that and literally 10 minutes later he's like i got one and i just sprinted and everyone else just went away from him <laughs> and i sprinted and i didn't know where it was and so i got from the site basically to him and i stood there and i was like where is it and he's like oh it's just around your legs so i literally just stood there because i didn't see where he pointed to and Anaconda was a little bit faster than I was in founding her. So she just literally just sneaked up and went around my legs and stood there in the middle of the mud. I couldn't get away, which I didn't try to. And I was so super excited. It was like a four meter Anaconda. So a four meter long yeah. Anaconda. Yeah. Wow. So that's like 12 feet or so. And it was just, it was curling around your So basically it leg. made an eight around my legs. It was just looking there. It was basically just like checking out the whole situation. And then there was a point she wanted to get away. 
So she literally pulled together and it pulled my legs together and I just fell over backwards. It was so strong. And I was laughing so hard because it was like, I thought it was really amazing. It was like, for me, it was like the best part of the trip. Well, and, you know, swimming with caimans and dolphins. But like, she just pulled together because she wanted to get away. And everyone's like, oh my God, oh, well, what's she doing? She's attacking us. I'm like, no. I worked with snakes before. I worked with boa constrictors. And it's like, if you don't attack them, they, they're they not going to attack you. Wow. And so, okay. So then after your South America adventure, oh. you were then, you then went where? What was your next part of your journey? So basically I used all of my savings, right? And by the time I built a travel Instagram and travel blog along the way, and I was like, oh, maybe I can make money off of it. But I found it really hard to kind of um, monetize a blog and I literally worked really, really hard to be on these experiences. Then you have to travel each day somewhere and you have to be on the road and then write and then monetize it and like reach out to people. And I was like, oh, no, uh-uh, this is not for me. Um, I don't want to make a business out of this part of passion because I can see myself getting unpassionate about traveling if I do that. And I didn't want that. I want to keep traveling as my life education, right? For me, it's an, I be a student of the world, basically. I want to meet people. I want to understand their traditions, their world attitude, their worldviews. I want to understand where they're coming from, how they grew up, why they're growing up there. Like, I want to, you know, immerse myself there, but I don't want to freaking make money off it just because, like, I would lose the passion about it. So I stopped that immediately. But then I didn't have really a lot of money left or that was in my head. So I had like $2,000 left. I thought I can never start a business with just $2,000. Like this is insane. At this time I was in Brazil and a friend of mine hosted me and, and he's amazing. He's like, we make it work. Don't worry. You know, like we get your teaching job and then on the side you can start something. And I was like, no, this is the worst idea ever. I'm scared. I don't know what the fuck to do. So I had a person that I knew already for four years and he ran a business in Vietnam and he asked me already for four years if I could be his marketing manager. And I always said, no, I don't have time. Uh, I do, you know, whatever else. And then I said like, oh, wait. So I called him up and I'd be, hey, do you need me now as a marketing manager? I have time now. <laughs> and he said, yes. So then I paid the flights. I flew over to Hanoi. And I got out of the airport and I put my credit card into the ADM with the security next door in the secure airport, right? And it uh, turns out they scanned my credit cards there. So three days later, it turns out they scanned my credit cards. So they tried to get all of the money out of my bank account. And because it was an Australian bank, since I lived there before, they blocked the cards immediately. They blocked the money. Um, so at least not all of the money was gone. I still had something like maybe a thousand US dollars on there. And so I started this job and it would take about six weeks from the start until I would be paid out for the first time. And so I was like, okay, what am I going to do? How do I get my money? So I called the bank and they're, and I asked them to send new credit cards over. And they're like, where are you? Well, in Vietnam, do you have post boxes there? No. Where do you put your letters? Well, in front of the street. <laughs> and then someone from the house collects them and they just give it to me and they're like, nah, we're not going to send you credit cards over there. I'm like, well, that's how it is in Vietnam. <laughs> and they're like, nope. Like, so how do I get my money? And and they had a fantastic idea. They thought it would be really, really good if I just walk into the branch and get out all of my money. So I walked into the bank branch and I had to go through different forms for a whole week. And then I got all my money out, you know? 
I thought like, oh, finally, I got my money. I got a new apartment. Okay, everything is settled. I should get an IST. So I got the IST. I have this back here on my lap. I have the mobile phone in my hand. And then I just leaned back a little bit. And I think, 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 because funny enough, I was writing a blog article on my phone that I wrote over three days already. And I just sat down to keep writing a little bit about my rape experience. And someone comes, crawl under the bench, snaps off my back from my lap and freaking runs. And literally it took me like half a second or whatever. I'm sitting there because I was thinking about how I'm phrasing this one sentence that I was raped. And I was like, well, I just write I was raped. And I'm like, wait, where's my back? Wait, 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 where's the fucking bag? Like all the money, my key, like what? They snapped the freaking bag off my lap without me fucking noticing it. Like they're that good, right? I mean, with they, I mean people who are pocket thieves and robbers and whatever all over the world. I don't mean a particular kind of nationality. Though I freaked out. And I literally just grabbed my phone and like the IC and I ran in whatever direction. I screamed all swearing words that I know in different languages because that's what I do <laughs> when I get robbed, apparently. It didn't bring the bag back. And so this is how I got bankrupt within a week. Because this was not just you got robbed. This was they stole all the money that you had to your name. You just took everything out of your account in cash. And the German credit cards that were my emergency fallback solution and my emergency medication and my keys to my new apartment and everything but the mobile phone and the passport that was hidden in my apartment. Unbelievable. So <laughs> at that moment, after you let out all the swear words that you know at the top of your lungs. Yeah. And you've finished screaming and it's you've come to terms about what has actually just happened. Yeah. How do you process that moment and what do you do? So the most honest version was I, I screamed out of my lungs first again, just to like emotional release and then I went back to the same place and I asked people around did you see something and they were like no and then a guy recognized that I have somehow of like a German accent or whatever so he offered me to help me a bit and I said like do you have cigarettes and he's like why and I'm like right now this is the only thing that will keep me from punching people if I smoke a cigarette he's like do you smoke I'm like no but it's gonna help me so do you have cigarettes and he's like no but I can buy you some so they were like a dollar and I was like please, <laughs> if I could ask you for one thing, can you please buy me a pack of cigarettes? He's like, really? I'm like, yep. And so he bought a pack of cigarettes and I started smoking. So, and then I was like, okay, the bag is gone. It's not going to come back. I'm not going to get the money back. What's left? And I was like, oh, I have my mobile phone in my hand. Great. So I called my landlord and my landlord came and he went to the police with me who laughed about me really hard and then wrote a police report that they wouldn't give to me, that I was able to only take pictures of. And then they threw it in the bin. So my landlord brought me home and he gave me a different set of keys. Then I talked to my parents and I said like, so, okay, this is what happened. <laughs> and they're like, they freaked out even more. And I was like, no, 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 like, I can't have you freak out. I Like, I cannot have you freak out. If you freak out, I freak out. I can't freak out anymore. Like, I'm over freaking out. So stop freaking out. It's okay. So we tried to kind of brainstorm if and how I could set money somewhere that wasn't an option. So basically I said like, okay, I have my passport. So I found 40 US dollars that was supposed to be for my visa. 
I found in the passport. And I was able to buy 1.5 kilogram of oatmeal and one bus ticket to work and one bus ticket back from work for six weeks. So I would eat one bowl of oatmeal every day. And sometimes I had a friend from work who would invite me for a noodle. And other than that, I was just, to be honest, starving. And because the job really sucked and the boss who I thought I w was a good friend really sucked. After a week or so, I just decided, okay, I'm done with this shit. How can I get out of this whole situation? So I started a business on the site, which is now what it is today. And I bootstrapped the heck out of it with the same things that I'd done before as in what I did with the scuba company, right? So I offered other people my skills to get skills from them that I needed and would get basically half of the time that I had for my business to fulfill their skill needs and the other half to work on my business. So I worked 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. in the job and usually like 6 p.m. to 2 a.m. as a business time and like two, three hours of that, I would just do any kind of work that they would need to be done so I can get work done. So for example, I exchanged digital marketing against website design and I would exchange um some business coaching against, for example, uh, I don't know, some mindset stuff or whatever it is, you know, like this kind of things. And this is how I bootstrapped everything in my business. That's amazing. I love that bartering economy as a strategic way of bootstrapping a business with literally zero resources. Yeah. I mean, literally zero money. It's like so people have these stories about like, oh, I started the business with only like a thousand dollars. And here's you like I started the business with zero dollars yeah. eating one bowl of oatmeal a day because it's all the food that I could afford. And I had to be more creative with zero dollars. And so you just bartered your skills that you had in order to get things that you want. That is unbelievable. All right, let's talk a little bit about the business that you decided to build. What is high performance and human optimization? Let's start with that. Right. So in my world, high performance and human optimization is basically the combination of slowing down to speed up, so basically, the high performance part is not about doing more, getting more done, uh, being more and whatever. It's really about slowing down to speed up. It's about integrating your work into your life and your lifestyle into your work. It's like the work-life plus state, basically, and achieving this flow state so that you don't feel like you're working. And the human optimization part for me is really, and this is, I I think this is what I achieved for myself as well. Like, remember when the doctors told me, oh, you can't cure this, right? But now I'm sitting here and 95% of my migraines are gone. Like, I just don't have them anymore. Can you talk a little bit about your T-I-M-E method yes. that you developed? So the time method, T-I-M-E. So time stands for time management, impactful leadership mind hacking and energy efficiency. And for me, those are um, the four pillars that someone would need who wants to be a high performer or high achiever and a leader and having impact, basically. So if you are the one who wants to be high performing, leaving a legacy and building a meaningful, impactful business, but you don't want to sacrifice your life for it, then this are the four pillars you want to put in place 
in order to achieve that. And let's talk a little bit about those pillars. Can you sort of go through them and share a little bit about what each of those means and how people can give the proper attention to each of those pillars? Yeah. So let's start with uh, the time management, right? So time management is, I feel like it's a huge umbrella for so many different things. What I start with my clients is we are going very fast, very deep into the 80-20 or even better into the 95-5. So I want to cut down as much as possible from their plates because really what we are doing is we're putting as much as we can on them until we can't balance all of these tasks anymore and we trip over them, right? So I start usually with writing out huge tasks of the things that they think they would be doing throughout the day or throughout the week. And literally everything, like even if it's just a one-off or a rare task or a recurring whatever, put it on this list and I tell you what one of those tasks are really bullshit tasks, what are busy tasks and which ones are actually the ones you should be doing in order to get the outcome for your business that you want. So then some of these tasks you can delegate and really, to be honest, there are so many tasks that you can just delete. They're unnecessary tasks. They will get you a little bit of an outcome or maybe they make you feel better about things, but they're really not necessary. And so this is what we get down first. And then I'll show my clients how to, without overwhelm, without the whole Oh, I freaking hate organization. I'm not an integrator. I hate doing all of the shit. How to plan and schedule it within a really tiny amount. Like it can be 20 minutes a week. You can schedule your whole week out and it doesn't have to be painful. But what it does give you is a lot of certainty, a lot of clarity and the ability to focus and be prioritized without having to wake up every morning and be like, which of these tasks should I be doing first? And like using all of your mental energy already on making the wrong decisions. And the wrong decision would be like, what should I be doing? The right decision is to know it already and then do the hard things. And then if there's a decision coming up, then you can make it, right? But um, yeah, so this is what I do first. So the impactful leadership, here's the thing. There's being a boss, being a manager, being a leader. I don't want to be a boss. I think that's totally outdated and I don't believe in bossing someone around. I will be a manager at some point again, because we'll always have to manage people in one way or the other. And there's relationship management, everything. And that all depends on being able to have great people skills, communication skills. But if you are not a leader, if you don't show up as a leader and you're not a leader from the inside out, you don't even have to go out there and try to have any impact or leave a legacy or try to achieve your ultimate potential or just, you know, Because who in this world would want to be with someone who is not showing up the way that he expects others to show up? So that's the leadership part. And I do include like team management uh, training in there, but that's more like the advanced thing in in the last weeks. So the mind hacking part, I call it mind hacking because... We are in the high performance space here. All of my clients are men so far. And when they come to me, most of them, they are not very receptive of mindset work or energy work or kind of woo-woo things, which I don't include much, but it can lead into some of these methods that I use with them. I just repackage them for them. (laughs) Damn it. Now it's out. (laughs) But you know, the thing is, 
they would say like mindset, then they're like, ah, no, Mm -mm. but mind hacking. Oh, hell yeah. I'm going to hack my mind. You know, I'm going to, oh, I want to hack my brain. Like, you know, I'm just kind of like biohacker and whatever. Yeah, great. You know, let's do this shit. I really don't care how you call it, but what we do, what get you the results, that makes a difference, right? And so throughout the work, it will anyways get to the point where they will come to me with like, oh, you know, actually, this is what I believe. Or like, if they call it limiting beliefs or roadblocks or like resistance, I also don't care. I don't use any specific words. I let them label it first and then I use what they call it, right? And then we smash it, basically. And then... We go into energy efficiency and energy efficiency is a huge part that I basically weave through all the others. And it's not a specifically uh, labeled part in my work, but I put it into all in each of the other um, steps. And it has a lot to do with habits and routines. It has a lot to do with, you know, keeping your energy high, not being in this what I was before in this high, high and super low, low, but in a consistent wave of contentment, basically how to contain high energy, uh, how to keep yourself uh, surrounded with people who have a similar energy, who repel toxicity, uh, how to repel toxicity, how to, you know, just manage your day-to-day lives and choose, also make the right decisions for yourself based on does it add up for your energy, for example? Like, do you feel good about it as in, do you feel energized about it or not? One of the things that you talk about and that you coach and that you teach is the concept of using your body, mind, and spirit as combined tools for achieving your goals. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and how people should think about that? Yeah, that's a concept that took me really long to understand that this is something that actually is a thing. (laughs) So basically, I don't care if you are believing in a religion or if you believe in the universe or angels, crystals, yoni eggs, I, the monster of Loch Ness or like whatever it is that you believe in, just choose the thing and make it your thing, right? If you don't believe in anything, create, then just believe in your own power to achieve something. Like, but make it one thing you think that is kind of like your driving force or yeah, just like the fuel to your engine, basically. So for me, I grew up being Christian and I just don't resonate with it at all. There's no other religion that I could resonate with. And um, the only lifestyle based uh, yeah, spiritual practice I can kind of uh, resonate is Buddhism, more or less. But I'm not a Buddhist. So like what I did is to get kind of this connection of body, mind and spirit is I started to pick pieces that resonate with me. So I pick a few things from Buddhism that resonate with me, right? For example, so in Buddhism, they they teach you to be happy now and to live a content life now and to be in peace now. So I'll do that, right? And then I found out about like this whole like we are all energy and we are living on vibrations. And so this is just plain metaphysics, right? Sounds woo, it's not. It's neurons, you know, atoms, everything that is physically actually just energy. So if I got into this um, scientific explanation behind it, it made so much sense to me and suddenly it wasn't woo anymore. <laughs> and suddenly it wasn't some manifesting or law of attraction bullshit, but it was actually physics and metaphysics. And I'm like, 
This does make sense to me now. We are energy. Water is energy. We have 75% or how much in our body? So, you know, like, yeah, sure, I'm energy. <laughs> that totally makes sense. So how can I calm down this energy when it's too, you know, too tensed or too boiled up or to whatever, when I'm frustrated? How can I align this again with my intentions and my goals? And so this brought me to understand how, for example, going back to the migraines, how my migraines were a lot of times a manifestation or an outcome of me being energetically not in in alignment with what I wanted and what I tried to achieve. So basically what I do when I work with people on their mind-body-spirit connection is literally integrating different practices and methods within their morning routine and evening routine that are not really time extensive, but that do bring everything more into alignment. Can you talk a little bit about your concept of lifestyle optimization, which is another term that you use and talk about what you mean by that? And how you work with business leaders on achieving that? Yeah. So I think a lot of times, especially like the location independent entrepreneurs and business owners, but also the ones who maybe have a brick and mortar business. But think about why we start a business, right? We are entrepreneurs because we kind of didn't want to get stuck in the system. We wanted to get out of the hamster wheel. And then we had this imagination of like time freedom and money freedom. I'm going to do all of these great things, but I only have to get this business started and get it running. And so until it makes me enough money. And then you're still in this rat race now that you build for yourself in the business of, well, I only need to do and get there. I only need to get there. But what if you would get all of the lifestyle first? And it actually gives you so much energy to achieve your business faster, your, your business growth and business goals. So when I ask my clients or when I when I work with business owners, a lot of times they have like five-year goals. So let's say in five years, I want to have this house and I want to travel like twice a year to these places. I'm like, what if I get the house now and you start traveling next year? No, that's not possible. I'm like, why? Like, you know, what's holding you back? Well, I don't have time to, okay, me, but that's not true. We do have a lot of time. We just prioritize it wrong, right? So just the first thing. So I kind of like just make the switch with them from I have to work, 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 work to first I have to live the life that I actually wanted to live when I retire. So let's just live this life right now. Because just imagine what if, Matt, tomorrow you go out of the Conrad Hotel and a freaking bus hits you and that's it. And I had this. And I can tell you waking up as a 19-year-old and asking yourself, did I actually try to achieve anything? And having to answer, nope, I really was a shitty person right now. I just was a people pleaser. My life sucks. When you're 19, that is really not, you know, but you don't want to have this as a 42-year-old or a 37-year-old or a 32-year-old, neither, because then you feel even more guilty about how much time you wasted. So why not just... I don't get this. I mean, obviously I have this experience, but I don't get people who think like when I am and then they give me any kind of KPIs when I have this, this, this and this, then I want to live like this. Why do you not live like this first? And then you go and get all of your weird KPIs that you have there. When you think back to all the different clients that you have worked with, and the progress that you've made with them. And we mentioned in the intro that 
you know, of the CEOs and business owners and others that you've worked with, many of them have been able to cut 50% of their work hours, they've been able to double and triple their revenue, and also to reduce the stress and anxiety and overwhelm, which is often more important than any of the above. When you think back to those accomplishments you were able to help those people make, what were some of the key sort of leverage points or breakthroughs or aha moments that were just like massively impactful for some of those individuals to really take everything to the next level? Literally make the switch from the hustle and the grind to the slow down to speed up. I work really, really intensively in the beginning to make them understand this concept of slowing down to speed up and how it works and prepare them that it will take surely three, four, maybe five weeks for them to feel really resistant, feel frustrated about it. Because the thing is, you will feel like you're not doing anything. You're not getting anywhere. You will feel like a lot of resistance. Maybe you feel all the fear, but that's why I'm here. And they have daily support Monday to Friday because on the weekends I hang out with elephants. So what I tell them usually is, what I think is a great uh, way to do it is use the voicemail, right? So they can have my WhatsApp and I tell them, just talk it out loud so you can hear yourself as well and hear what you're saying because sometimes it doesn't even make sense. So if you talk and you hear it and you feel like this is stupid, doesn't make sense, you can just write me, okay, that's fine. I got it, right? Just talk it all out to me on the message, send it to me. And then if you got it already by talking it out loud, you can just say like, all right, yeah, stupid, thanks, got it. If not, then I'm here to tell you in a fairly harsh and kind way, <laughs> this is how we get through. And I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm not going to tell you like the first two weeks will be brilliant. You will be feeling amazing. No, I tell them actually it's the first two to four weeks. You're not going to have much fun with me, but that's why you're here. And that's going to be the growth. And that's why I'm on your side. And here's how we're going to get through it, right? But you need to stick to it and just don't run away. If you run away, that's going to be shit. If you don't run away, it's only going to be four weeks, right? And then it's where the growth is going to come back. And then you will see the results. And so I think it helps for many of them that I do have this scientific approach because this is how I work and probably I attract people. They work similar to me as well, right? And so if I have a scientifically logical explanation of why they feel how they feel and how we can get through it, they feel immediately relieved and be like, okay, yeah, this totally makes sense. And then we can work through it, right? And then I have the tools and the methods for them. And then that's just the way of like, they have to just do it then basically. Awesome. Can you also talk about the importance of social impact and affecting positive change in the world? I know it's a really important thing for you in general, and I know you've incorporated it into your business and it's a really significant part of what you do. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the concept in general and then specifically your relationship with Daughters Rising and some of the stuff that you do? Yeah. So I think you and me, <laughs> you specifically, but me as a second version of it, you as a middle-aged white male, you're the most privileged version of a human being on this planet Earth, whether middle-aged white males want to hear it or not, but it's the truth. And me as a, I'm not middle-aged, 
as a woman, <laughs> young woman, <laughs> um, as a young woman, but also white, I just come straight after you, right? And these few hurdles they put in front of us, they're shit, they're exhausting. But man, you know, like, am I going to kick them down and just walk over them? Sure, right? Is it fun? Nah. Is it possible to do it? 100%. But we have so many marginalized communities. We have so many other nationalities, people, races that we make a difference in. Whereas there's no difference. They're just as human as you and I. And so I, in my head, obviously, that doesn't make sense, but it is what it is. I know where it comes from. And so I do feel a big responsibility just to do something about it. And so I feel like What I can do about it is, is A, using my platform as a education towards my audience as probably mostly white people to say like, please look at it and do something about it. Educate yourself. I do have a lot of friends, obviously, from all kind of backgrounds and I love it. I wouldn't want to change it, but I wouldn't, I would never want to ask them about doing the work for me. You know what I mean? Because I had this as well. And I know this is like, I had men asking me to explain to them why this specifically behavior would be uh, would be taken as harassment or would be inappropriate. And it would be sitting there and I'm like, I mean, no, this is really exhausting for me to talk about it, especially because I went through so many different traumas on this part as well. And in the beginning, I did. I did this for years. I explained to them. I sat down and, and really not in an offended way, but I was like, This is actually not my job. Why don't you just fucking Google it first? Ask your male friends that have a little bit more experience already and are a little bit more leveled up already. So it's the same thing. So for me, it's really, really, really important that the privilege that I have and the opportunities that I have, that I can give them, you know, do good with it. And so I've seen a lot of things in the world. And one thing that I've seen is that two groups I really resonate with and they have given me a home as well. But they are the ones that are, in my experience or opinion maybe, one of the most outsider groups. And those are ethnic minorities and refugees. And so I've been debating long and long and long, should I do something about like sexual violence, whatever, and it's really heavy on me. Not because of my own trauma, but because like, you should listen to the stories. Man, it's just, this is fucked up. And I really just, I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to, you know, deal with this every single day. So I found the perfect solution, basically. So my friend Alexa, she has this eco lodge um, outside of Chiang Mai in Thailand. It's called the Chai Lai Orchid. And they rescued 13 elephants. And I always somehow, however, had a connection with elephants. And so two years ago for my birthday, I went there to visit them as a customer, basically as a guest. And then they literally just didn't get rid of me anymore. So I would return back all the time to support, first of all, the situation for the elephants. But then I found out about that besides the eco lodge, the Chilite Orchid, she's running a nonprofit called Daughters Rising. And The nonprofit is basically, so their mission is to empower at risk girls from ethnic minorities or refugee backgrounds to uh, get out of any risk to be trafficked and to help them to cut through the intergenerational poverty in their communities 
and basically bring their knowledge that they get in our educational programs basically back to the communities. So there's a few different ways that they do this. We have scholarships for universities that we pay for completely, even with like lodging and everything. Also, there is a eight-month on-the-job training in tourism. So they can be, if they choose to be a maid, they can be a maid. They can be working the reception in the coffee shop. They can become a tour guide. And they get the whole education as well for free, including salary and housing. So basically, they literally just earn money and can save it up and send it to their families or whatever, support their villages. And when they finish with it, they get the chance to apply for a interest-free loan to build their own businesses. And we already have two women who've done that, which is freaking amazing. And so I literally got stuck there and I told them, well, I'm here now, I'm not going to leave. And they were like, yeah, sure, because they heard that plenty of times and it's not going to happen very often. But as I am who I am, I stick to my word. And so I did a fundraiser for them first and then it just turned into this relationship and they became my family. And so I started to put hours into the game where now it turns into, since I crowned myself in Chiang Mai, I'm there once a week at least and usually put in like five to 10 hours of work. I help them with whatever is necessary. And then we also have English training and we do drive into the villages, into the jungle and help the kids with some uh, workshops or English training or, for example, how to make soaps, how to how to make their own toothpaste from herbs that they find in the forest. Because in some villages, they don't get any education at all. So they don't go to any school because they don't have any transport to go there. And so then they just learn things from their families and that's it. And the other thing is with each client that I basically get into my VIP program, I donate $500 of my own revenue, basically, to Daughters Rising to support them with all their scholarships, with uh, new projects and with ever whatever they need. That's so amazing. You are doing such awesome and important stuff. All right. I want to be conscious of your time. <laughs> and at this point, Monique, are you ready to move into the lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. What is one book that has influenced you over the years that you would most recommend people check out? Okay. The Laws of Human Nature from Robert Crean. It's only came out like a year or something ago. But if you're into a little bit of neuroscience and uh, human behavior, Robert Greene, 48 Laws of Power as well. Mastery is fantastic. But I love particular, especially for his structure and his crazy research. He researched five years for this book, um, The Laws of Human Nature. Awesome. What is one app or productivity tool that you're currently using that you'd recommend? Um, the news feed eradicator for it's a Chrome extension to cut out the whole news, news feed on Facebook. And I like a paper book. It's called the 10 minute planner. And it's for me the best way how to plan your week and your days. I don't use a digital app. Awesome. At this point in your life, knowing everything that you know now and having all the experiences that you had. If you could go back in time to when you were 18 mm -hmm. and give yourself one piece of advice, what would you say to 18-year-old Monique? Let all the people around you just talk and trust yourself. Awesome. 
If you could have dinner with one person who's currently alive today, could be anyone, author, celebrity, movie star, public figure, any person that you've never met is currently alive today, who would you choose and why? Lady Gaga, because she's also going through a lot of physical pain. She worked herself up in an industry that has like probably one of the highest rates of sexual violence. Um, and she is still standing and is doing a lot of good work. And she learned how to keep her boundaries and everything. And I just wanted to sit down and would just, I would just high five her and be telling her how fucking badass she is. And probably that's, that's it. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> You have now been to 44 countries. I know this is a really, really hard question for travelers, but that's why I ask it on the show to give people ideas to think about. What would you say are your top three favorite travel destinations that you have ever been to? I can't tell you travel destinations. I can tell you about probably experience. Sure. Definitely, definitely Peru with uh, the Laguna Sicente y Nueva in the. Uh, Oh, Haras. It's in the Haras uh, mountains. It's on 5,200 meters. And the trek seems to be easy. And on the last 150 meters high, you're just going to die. But the, uh, I think I showed you the picture, right? The, the Laguna on top. Okay. The reward, if someone doesn't understand that we have to save our freaking planet. If you go there and you don't understand that we need to do something to keep these places like this in order for whomever has kids to see these and then their kids and maybe their kids. Because my nephew and my niece, they won't see some places and some animals that right now I've been seeing. And this makes me really fucking sad, I gotta say. So this is one, Huaras and the Laguna Sesenda Nevea. Definitely go into one jungle somewhere i would actually highly recommend somewhere latin america brazil peru or bolivia for sure i obviously went into bolivia so i can recommend that but go far away i cannot recommend to take any trucks or plant-based medicine or whatever for your first experience because you want to just be conscious and aware just let it happen first take whatever you want with your second trip um and the third one it's really hard but I want to include a diving experience because it had a huge impact on me. And I didn't go diving anywhere else than in Thailand. But in Thailand, in the Andaman Sea, the uh, Similan Islands, I saw a manta ray and it changed my life. On a, like, it just did. So wherever you want to go, but choose somewhere. If you're not into diving, that's fine. Just, you know. That's a great pick. I did some scuba diving training in Thailand as well. And I was insanely fortunate to have the rare experience of meeting a whale shark completely in the wild and swimming around with it for probably hung out with us for like 10 minutes. It was absolutely. Well, yeah, I only waited epic. a year for it and I could do things. <laughs> and I was diving every single day. So go away. <laughs> So amazing. You never know what you'll see when you come to Thailand. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to wrap this up here by asking you, what are your top 
three bucket list destinations, places you've never been before that are the highest on your list you would most love to see? The Tiger Temple in Bhutan, the top of the Mount Everest that I will climb, and mm, some airplane I'm going to jump out of over some area, probably a desert, I'm going to jump into from an airplane with my own skydiving license. Amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. Monique, I want to thank you so much for being here. I think you are amazing. Thank I think you. you're such an inspiration. I think you're so talented. I want everybody to check out you and your stuff and your business. And I mean, I just want to, I'll be honest with you. I love your branding. I think you are, <laughs> I think you are such a badass and I think you put that front and center in your branding. And I think it is so awesome. I want people to just go to your website just to see that. Um, and just to see what you're doing with how you're positioning your brand and everything. Cause I think it, that alone is just awesome, but definitely I want you to let people know how they can find you, contact you, follow you and get into your universe. Yeah. Well, I think the best way is obviously like go to my website. It's just my full name, MoniqueLindner.com. I do have free resources on there. So currently, <laughs> changes sometimes depends. Currently, I have a, a guide, a five-step guide to your perfect morning routine for busy leaders on there. So basically, it shows you which parts of a morning routine you should include and which ones you can choose so you can build your own perfect one, basically, and how to bring it actually to a routine that you don't dread yourself to do. So that's a guide that you can just download. It's a PDF guide, so it's really easy. You can download it on your phone, read wherever, you know, so um, you can download this for free. It should be on the front page of my website, I believe, under my super badass photo. <laughs> Yeah, so that's one. And then if you find me on Facebook with my personal profile, you just search for Monique Lindner and the first yellow one that pops up, that should be me. And you will be able to find my Facebook group there. We're planning right now all amazing content, uh, new life trainings, new, oh my God, so much stuff. So if you get in now, it's the right time for you to get all of the good stuff out of there. I think the group link is facebook.com com slash group slash productivity accelerator i made it pretty easy so it's old but yeah we will link all of this stuff up in the show notes by the way so if you just go to one place at the maverickshow.com and then just go to the show notes for this episode we're going to link up everything that we talked about all of the recommendations that monique made and of course all the links to her website facebook group social media profile and everything else so you can just find it all there at one place. Monique, thank you so much for being here. This Thanks, was Matt. so amazing. Yeah, it was so much fun. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing. 
to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing. Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad.